Today, we are looking forward to, and I'm really excited about this, what I think perhaps is the most powerful, the most transformational, certainly the most inspirational hospitality principle on the planet. Every single leader that you know, that you have respect for, actually practices this principle. And every leader that you don't respect doesn't have this principle in their, in their repertoire. You can lead. You can be a leader without it. But you will not be a leader worth following without this principle. This extraordinary concept actually explains in part, or at least partially explains, why a Jewish, first century Jewish cult following a crucified leader with no territory, no military, no authority, not only survived but thrived in the first and second and third century and were eventually embraced by the entire empire, that empire that tried to eradicate it, to exterminate it. You see, Jesus came into this world to introduce something brand new for the world. Now, what Jesus came to introduce was a radical departure of everything that was in place, including the way that the world exercised authority and leadership. On the religious front, it meant that Jesus had to replace everything that was in place because the religious systems of the first and second century are oftentimes built with the very structures of the kingdoms of this world. In other words, they're always top-down. But the value system and the movement that Jesus came to begin and launch would actually be upside down. You see, there was a miracle that caused the most disruption during Jesus' ministry. It was when he raised Lazarus from the dead. The reason it was so disruptive And the reason it caused so much controversy is that Lazarus was known outside the village that he lived in, Bethany. The reason this miracle caused quite a stir wasn't that Lazarus was dead. You see, Jesus showed up at the end of, uh, uh, Jesus showed up at the funeral and he raised a man from the dead. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look a lot through this story. If you have your Bibles, go to John chapter 11. If not, we'll follow along on the screen. John chapter 11, verse 46. John chapter 11, verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The chief priests, the Pharisees, called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away our temples and our nation. Now look down at verse 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take Jesus' life. Therefore, verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judah. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. 
Here's the interesting thing. Even in the 21st century, we have a tendency to hang on to much of what Jesus came to replace. Jesus wanted to celebrate the Passover in the city of Jerusalem, but he had to be careful lest he be arrested before the Passover even got there. So a few days before the Passover, Jesus is still trying to quietly make his way around the city, staying just far enough away from the city so he's not causing problems. And maybe at the last minute, he can enter into the city for the Passover. Look back at your Bibles. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 12 say this. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests, verse 10, this is crazy. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus again. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Look at verse 19 in that chapter. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So the chief priests make plans to kill Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus was evidence that this is a real thing. It's evidence of the fact that Jesus is about to overwhelm the entire religious system. They have to stop it. Now, this is a very important point. It's not the point of this message, but I don't want you to miss this because some of you have abandoned Christianity. You grew up in your faith. You walked away because the version of your faith you grew up on was a version where you just had faith in faith and you just had to believe. And I want you to know, first century Christianity, the original version was not just about believing in belief. It was about evidence. The reason people began to follow Jesus didn't start off in faith. The reason they began to follow Jesus was something they saw. That Christianity, from the very beginning, has been an informed faith. You became a Christian. You become a Christian by faith but you don't become a Christian because of faith. What does that mean for us today? Back then, they had Jesus walking with them. Today, we don't have the physical presence of Jesus. What we have is all of us. So when Paul says that we're ambassadors, we're agents of restoration, that when the world looks at us, they see Jesus or they see us, If we want to change the world, then we have to go back to what the first century Christians did, which was, we saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. There is something here. We see Matt living the way that Jesus calls him to live. There's something there. After a few days, people just got caught up in the excitement of it. 
In fact, at this point, Jesus might have been a little more popular than even the feast was itself, the Passover feast. People in the city are looking for him. People outside the city are following him. There's so much emotion. It's beginning to crescendo and build. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the group that were trying to arrest him, they finally decide to make their way to the city of Jerusalem. You can imagine the tension is high. Passover was always a time for zealots to proclaim that they were the Messiah. There's so much tension. There's so many people. The other thing that you have to picture is Jerusalem is a large city. By ancient standards, people are streaming into the city. They're coming from all over. Thousands of pilgrims are streaming into the city. And so Jesus tries to just blend into the crowd. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at, at verse 32 through 38, and then we're going to look at 41 through 45. Mark 10, 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem. With Jesus leading the way, the disciples were astonished, while those who, were, who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and he told them what was going to happen. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn, condemn him to death and he will be handed over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him, they'll spit on him, they'll flog him, they'll kill him, and three days later he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Well, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. 38, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Look at verse 41. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom, as a ransom for many. So just as Jesus had just explained, this is a highly emotional speech. And here's kind of the short version. I'm going to lay out what's going to happen to you. And the disciples seem like they don't even care. Hey, Jesus, would you do us a favor? Jesus, we need something from you. So Jesus, gracious Jesus says, what do you want from me? And they kind of look over their shoulders. Picture this. They look over their shoulders. They don't want the other guys to hear. And they say, hey, Jesus, would you let one of us sit on your right and the other at your left in glory? Jesus, we, we know we can't be number one because you're number one. 
But can we be like number two and can we be number three? In other words, can we have a positions of authority in your upcoming kingdom organization? Because we all know where this is headed. After the spitting, the flogging, and whatever that was all about, we know you're going to be the king. And Jesus says to them, and he's so patient, guys, you don't know what you're asking for. Because he knew and they would discover that pain always precedes the glory. And they respond, no, sure, we can handle it. We can hang with you. You just tell us what we need to do. We want to be number one or two or three. In a few weeks, we would get to this part of the story when Jesus is arrested before he is split a single drop of blood, they run. When the other guys overheard this conversation, when the ten heard this, and this was a learning for me this week, they became indignant with James and John. Now, I want you to understand, this doesn't mean they were offended. It wasn't like, how could you say such a thing to Jesus after what he's just told us? No, they became indignant because they were like, what about us? We want to be number two. We want to be number three. Get out of my way, Peter and John. I'm older. And the text says that Jesus called them together again. Here's another little Jesus lecture. And if you're a Jesus follower, if you're a Christ follower this morning, this is for you. If you're in ministry like me, this is really for me. If you're not a Christian, it's our failure to have embraced what Jesus is all about to say that may be the reason why you have left your faith to begin with. Here's what Jesus said. Guys, you know what it's like to be regarded as rulers over the Gentiles. You know how they lord it over you. How the high officials exercise authority over them. And the Greek text here uses two Greek words that are rarely used anywhere else in the Greek language, which means that the author is trying to make a very specific point. In the Greek, there are two very specific words used here regarding authority. And Jesus' point is this, guys... You know how authority works. You know that the person at the top has all the resources, all the power, all the leverage flowing up to them, and they leverage their power for their own benefit, regardless of what it means for anyone underneath them. You know how that works. You know how the Gentiles exercise authority, and the 12 are sitting there probably going, yeah, 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 we know exactly how it works. That's why we're asking if we can be at the top of the pyramid. We want to be on the top. We know exactly how it works. These next four English words, these next five Greek words are so powerful. I want you to look at verse 43. And they're the words that you just need to hear today that you must take to heart. But more than that, these are words that you have to take home and to work. And here's what he says. He says this, you guys know how it works? Not so with you. 
Not so with you. What I'm introducing you guys is brand new. What I'm introducing is something so different. What I'm introducing is such a departure from the kingdoms of this world. They have resources, they have power, they have authority. But that power and influence is not for the powerful and the influential. Friends, we're going to flip this upside down. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, How many of you want to be great? All their hands go up. And he says, Okay, in my kingdom, this is how it works. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Yep, all those hands went down. They looked around and said, wait, a servant? You see, their families, many of their families had servants. Matthew, the tax collector, would have had a ton of servants. And Jesus said, if you're going to be great in my movement, then you must take the position of a servant. That is, you go to the back of the line. To which they thought, just like you and I think, That's not very fun. And it gets worse. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave. You see, a servant, at least they get paid. A slave, that's the back of the line. And they're quiet. And Jesus says, you want to be in on my deal? You want to be leaders in my deal? You should have known now, by now, guys, my world is an upside-down world. My kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. I've come to replace all that is in place. Not only the kingdoms of this world, but even the religious structures of this world. And before they could object, before they could leave, before they could ask tough questions, Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. A ransom for many. Friends, I think every Christian should memorize this statement. I think if we got this right, something would happen in our community. I know it would happen in our families. But Jesus is simply saying, guys, let me take all your excuses away. I'm your leader, and even I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life away. They had no idea what was coming. They had no idea that he literally meant that he was going to lay down his life And soon they would be confronted with this overwhelming, powerful, transformational idea that Jesus was the king who came to reverse the order of things. That he would be the king that would lay down his life for his subjects and that he would say to his subjects, I'm not asking you to lay down your life for me. I'm asking you to lay down your life for one another. And the amazing thing about this is that these guys got it. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. After John, we get to the book of Acts that tells us what happened after the resurrection. In the book of Acts, there's a problem with the early church. You know what the first problem with the early church was? These guys were spending so much time serving food to widows that they can't get enough of a break to teach everyone else what Jesus had taught them. In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, it says this, So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Friends, these disciples finally, literally, 
had to pry their fingers off the serving trays to get them to teach because they were the only ones who knew what Jesus taught. They got this. They were not reluctant to go back to the back of the line. They had just come through the parade of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, they're close to Jesus. They're literally famous. They're sought after. And now together, celebrating Passover, and they can just imagine what the next day may hold for them as Jesus is about to proclaim himself as, as the king. And they're eating the Passover meal, and Jesus is saying odd things, and Judas walks out. Listen to John chapter 13, verse 4 through 8. So he got up from the meal. He took, out his, he took off his outer clothing. John 13, verse 5. He wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin. He began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing but later you'll understand, Peter in verse 8, no, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Suddenly Jesus stands up, he takes off his outer robe, he wraps a towel around his waist. These guys panicked because they knew what he was about to do. They panicked because none of them even had thought to wash their own feet much less someone else's feet. None of them had taken it upon themselves to find a servant to wash Jesus' feet. You see, washing feet takes a, a while. Washing 12 pairs of feet takes a long time. I think that no one said a word after Peter finally settled down. All they heard in that room was the dripping of water from that cloth of Jesus. Foot by foot, toe by toe, ankle by ankle. These guys were completely humiliated. They knew what those hands could do. They had seen Jesus do things with his hands that no one else would ever believe. And there he was washing their feet. And he took this opportunity to illustrate the roadside chat. And when he had finished, he stood up, he put back on his his rabbi robe, he wiped his hands, he sat down at the, at the table. I still think there's no one saying a word. Look at John 13, verse 13. You call me teacher. And Lord, and rightfully so, that's what I am, but now your Lord and teacher has washed your feet. You need to wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you, very truly I say to you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. In fact, in the years following the resurrection of Jesus, in the years following the resurrection of our living Lord, the persecuted church just did that. In fact, the other firstness of the first century church was so strong and so out in front that it was actually appalling to the Roman and Greek culture. 
that celebrated strength and victory and conquest. The idea that these people would put other people first, that they would leverage what they had for the sake of other people, that instead of using their own power to become more powerful, they would use their power to empower people. That was appalling. It was completely upside down, but over time it actually became appealing and people flocked to Jesus. You see, Christians refused to abandon sick people. Christians refused to abandon the villages when the plague swept through and, and took out just about everybody. And they refused to run, us Christians, because Christians were not afraid of death. They took in abandoned and exposed children and their compassion and generosity and their other firstness and their willingness to give and distribute or basically recognize the dignity and equality of other people was staggering and it eventually it became contagious. Friends, Christianity spread around the entire empire and against all odds, a cult with a crucified leader, with no territory, no military, no authority, was eventually embraced by the empire that set out to destroy it. Friends, if you're a Christian, that's our story. Those are our people. It worked once, it will work again. What if we just did that? I know it's not intuitive, it's not natural, it goes upside down, it requires me to look for an opportunity to go last, and let's be honest, when you see it, you admire it. When you see it, you seek it. And if you've ever had the opportunity to follow someone who models it, you respect them. And Christians, we are called to do it. All right, Matt, what does it look like in my world? I think it all boils down to one simple question. It's a simple question that we should ask in every single environment and in every single relationship. It's a question that as a leader, I get asked often, but I don't ask often enough. In the upside down world that Jesus introduced to this world, it's a question that those of us with more authority with more power, with more influence, should ask the most. And it's these questions. How can I help? How can I leverage me for you? And as a Jesus follower, we should ask these questions the most. We should ask these questions often. We should ask this question of the people who least expect it and perhaps who may feel like they don't deserve it. And if you do, you will be like your Father in heaven who looked down on this self-centered, me-first world and asked, what can I do to help? And then he sent his Son to not be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he looks at you in the eye and he looks at me in the eye and he says, now Matt, you just lost your excuse. Go do for others as I have already done for you. Imagine, friends, what this would look like and what would happen in our family. Imagine what it would do in our community. 
Imagine what it would do in our country if Christians fully embraced this idea. My friends, it rocked the world once. Perhaps it could rock it again. Let's pray. God, if I said anything that wasn't of you, please take it from my friends' minds. If you used me in a small way to encourage my friends, make it about the Holy Spirit that prompts, guides, and leads. We love you. We ask all this in your most powerful name. Amen.